Reading from Psalms 9, 7 through 10. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he judges the world with righteousness. He executes judgment on the nations with fairness. The Lord is a refuge for the persecuted, a refuge in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you because you have not abandoned those who seek you, Lord. Please pray with me. O glorious Savior, we do worship your name. We remember your death and resurrection, and we thank you for saving us. We thank you for making a way back to God that we can not be judged, but live with you forever. Thank you for the opportunity we have, Lord, to gather here and worship your name, uh, to praise you for all the wonderful things that you have done for us. Now, Lord, speak through your servant Jeff to us. May we hear your words in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Jace. How are we doing today? Welcome this morning. We're starting a new sermon series through the books of Judges and Ruth. Judges and Ruth. Those two books represent the period of Judges. And so the reason why I had uh, Jace read that scripture from the psalm is because if you notice, the best judge judges with righteousness. They judge with righteousness. And what we're going to encounter in this book is a lot of judges who don't do that. And a lot of people who are not righteous either. And so it's going to be a mixed bag, but this is going to be a riveting, engaging study through Judges and Ruth. So I'm going to encourage you to do a couple of things. One, be praying. Be praying about who you might invite to this series. It's going to be a fantastic series to invite friends and family to who may not know the Lord. But then also be praying for me and be praying for the pastors as we... Uh, as we exposit this wonderful and great text. Everyone in this room, I would venture to say, has faced or will face challenges or changes that fundamentally alter the course of your lives. And in that moment, at that moment, we come to realize that there is no going back. Life will never be the same. I think of the last day my kids, all of my kids jumped up into my chair. I used to work at Dave Smith Motors, and the first time I made a $10,000 check, I drove straight to the furniture store, and I bought this gigantic chair that is just about the size of a love seat. And I bought it not just because I needed a new chair to take up space in my living room, but because I want all four of my kids to be able to sit in it with me and watch movies and read books and read the Bible and, and do all the things we did. And, and I remember the last time all four of them did that. And I wish someone had woken me up this, that morning, woken me up that morning and said, hey, today's the last day. This is the last time you will ever do that with your kids. I wish someone had done that. But I didn't know. I didn't know that that, that would be it. Or someone had said, hey, suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> because from this day forward, everything in your life is going to change. It's going to change for the better. Of course you want it to. How weird would it be, you know, if all three of my sons, 18, 19, and 22-year-olds, jumped up into my chair for a tickle fight? I mean, that would be super weird. <clears throat> this experience of loss and change is particularly acute as it relates to mothers, fathers, and leaders. You've experienced this, who have significantly impacted our lives in the gospel. Sometimes the hardest thing to do is to say goodbye to those who've left an indelible mark on us with their character, their faith, and their love. 
And we hope the next chapter in our lives will be as good. We hope it will be better. But what happens when it isn't? The book of Judges is just that kind of experience. The first chapter or two actually looks back with fondness and nostalgia on Joshua, his faithfulness, his strength, his courage, his spirituality, his triumph as Moses' replacement. Joshua's leadership was the benchmark against whom all successors will be measured. And never had there been a tougher act to follow or bigger shoes to fill. Joshua was quite literally an improvement on Moses. He had all of Moses' good qualities and none of the luggage. Like none of Moses' baggage, none of his fear, none of his self-doubt, and uh, none of his uh, things like a short temper. He didn't have those things. He wasn't a perfect man, but he was Israel's gold standard leader. And, and, and as we look at Judges 21-25, we see a very sad ending to the book. I want to show it to you. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone just did whatever seemed right to him. What a sad way to end this chapter. Could there be a more relevant diagnosis for our culture today than that verse right there? And this is why, folks, we must begin to see the gospel not, as a, not merely as a message about Jesus who died on a cross for my sins, so when I die, I can go to heaven. We have to begin to see what frames the gospel. The heart of the message is this. There is a sovereign king who has issued us his law. And we have broken that law. And in our breaking of that law, we find ourselves to be rebels in his realm. We find ourselves to be leading an active insurgency in his realm, in his kingdom. And this is why the gospel of Jesus must always start with this sentence. The gospel is the royal announcement that God's rightful and true king has come. And he calls me to repentance of my sin and my rebellion in his sovereign realm. And through this, I receive salvation. Through this, I receive forgiveness for sins by his grace. And so what could possibly be the silver lining in a book that ends this way? Since the book cannot commend the judges of Israel to us as paragons of principal leadership, then what lessons are you and I to take away from it? What should we take away from it? What should we learn from this book? What's it about? And consider several key passages that tell us what the purpose of the author is in the book. The first one is this key verse about the people. Judges 2.19, this really summarizes their experience and their response. Whenever the judge died, the Israelites would act even more corruptly than their ancestors following other gods to serve them and bow in worship to them. They did not turn from their evil practices or their obstinate ways. It, it just seems like in the book of Judges and in the book of Ruth, no matter how hard they try, they just keep blowing it. And they just keep falling into corruption and sin. And look at the key verse about God, Judges 2.1. It says, God says this through the angel of the Lord. I brought you out of Egypt and I led you into the land I had promised to your ancestors. I also said, I will never break my covenant with you. God has one relentless stance toward the people despite their failings. He is a God of grace and a God who is faithful to his word, everything that he has promised. And then there's a key verse about God's plan. Notice this. Don't miss this. 
Judges is bookended by God's sovereign choice of Judah as Joshua's successor and a son from the tribe of Judah being born, a new hope for Israel in David and in his heir, the Messiah. Judges chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 state this. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites inquired of the Lord, who will be the first to fight for us against the Canaanites? And the Lord answered, my choice is Judah. Judah is to go. I have handed the land over to him. If Judah doesn't do his job, then the people of the land, they will just become canonized. But then look at the end of the story. The end of the story is actually the last verses in Ruth, the book of Ruth. Ruth 4, 17, it says, the neighbor women said, a son has been born to Naomi. Now, she's the grandmother. She was, the son was actually born to uh, Ruth. And they named him Obed. His father, he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then we learn in Matthew's genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, here's what we learn, is that Obed, Jesse, and David are, are in the tribe of Judah. And Jesus Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so what we see here is we see that even though things look like they're kind of falling apart and God is just holding the nation together, trust me, God hasn't taken his hands off the wheel. This story is unfolding exactly as God has foreseen and predestined. God is moving the story along to Judah. And this heir, this tribesman who will bring God's sovereign, gracious reign to the world. And so today we're just going to look at an overview of the message of Judges set against the backdrop of Joshua's high bar of godly and faithful leadership. So let's look at Joshua's legacy. Joshua was the leader who, whose influence far outlived him. And the first way that we see that Joshua left the legacy with the nation is he, he left a unified nation. He left a unified nation. Uh, contrasted to the book of Judges, what we begin to see is that all the 12 tribes and the, and the additional tribe, they begin to fracture. They begin to split apart. By the time we get to Solomon, there will be no stopping this. The nation will split into two a northern kingdom Israel, and a southern kingdom Judah. But it starts happening right here in the book of Judges, this fracturing of the people. And there are a few things more stressful than a lack of unity among God's people. Families being ripped apart by adultery, abandonment, or abuse, or divorce. They go through tremendous stress, most of which is channeled into the uh, lives of the children. Churches that are torn apart by doctrinal disputes, it's very sad. Or worse, even just mere preferences of factions within the church. These churches go through tremendous strain, causing anxiety and unrest. Leaders who experience a falling out can experience diminished effectiveness as the crisis of leadership becomes all-consuming for the church. And Joshua's legacy was, the, was that he left the nation arguably better than he had found it. He learned from Moses' mistakes, and he was faithful to unify the people. Look at Judges chapter 1, verse 1. Look at this. It says, after the death of Joshua, the Israelites inquired of the Lord, who will be the first to go out and fight for us against the Canaanites? Notice the agreement. Notice the oneness. Notice the unity there. It's not this tribe went out and inquired, or these three tribes went out and they broke off and inquired. It's all of Israel, all the tribes, and their elders came before the Lord to ask him together who will fight against Canaan. 
And so agreement over our mission and our purpose and our core beliefs and values inspires confidence in everyone, and disunity does exactly the opposite. Disunity puts everyone on edge. Disunity makes everybody worry. And Joshua modeled this approach to leadership, and we are called to this. Let me show you, in Christ now, we can actually uh, we can actually carry this out. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, it says, Therefore I, Paul says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Understand there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. Most of the sermons I've heard on this passage have talked about the doctrine of verses five and six, but look at verses four and five. Look at what he says here, or one through three. He says that we are to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. What does it take to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace? Well, it it doesn't take a little effort. It takes every effort. And what kind of effort does it take? It takes the humility and the gentleness of leaders and the people of God being humble and gentle and kind and patient with each other, bearing up with one another in love. This is what we're called to do. And so Joshua modeled this. And every time they get it right in the book of Judges, they look like Joshua. Number two, he was a model of teamwork. Moses had to learn the hard way that good leadership requires delegation. Moses was killing himself by hearing every single case in Israel, every single case among the people. And then his father-in-law had a brilliant suggestion. Why don't you recruit some help? Like, why don't you recruit a team of people who can hear these cases? And it literally saved Moses' life. And a good leader learns from their mistakes A better leader learns from your mistakes. A better leader learns from his mistakes and the others as he avoids, seeks to avoid those pitfalls, and that's just the kind of person that Joshua was. Everything that Joshua did, he accomplished along with the elders and the leaders of Israel. Notice this. Throughout the book, you can look this up. Every time Joshua did anything, he did it with the elders. He did it with the elders. In Joshua chapter 7, verse 6, he goes before the ark of the Lord to pray with the elders. In chapter 8, verse 10, he prepares for war and he addresses the nation with the elders. Uh, When he can't do it anymore, he delegates authority to judge civil cases to the elders in chapter 20. And and his final passing of the baton of leadership is to them at his death. And these are the two passages that sum that up. One is at the end of Joshua. One is at the beginning of Judges. Joshua 24, 31. It says, Israel worshiped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime and during the lifetimes of the elders, notice this passage, notice this phrase, who outlived Joshua and who had experienced all the works of the Lord had done for Israel. And then over in Judges 2, 7, it says the people worshiped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime and during the lifetimes of the elders who outlived Joshua. The best leaders are always thinking beyond their term. And Joshua invested in the lives of the elders and the officers and the leaders and judges of Israel so that when he died, a next generation of leaders would be able to carry on in his absence and reproduce his excellence. And good leaders are always thinking about the team. They're always in thinking about investing in the team. 
Look at what Jesus prayed for all believers globally. John 7, 17, 23. He says, I am in them and, and you are in me so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them as you have loved me. How is the world going to know that? Through their oneness, through their unity. And what is he doing in John chapters 14 through 17? He's preparing a next generation of leaders. He's investing his life in the disciples to carry on his mission in his absence. Jesus is here preparing them, and he also wants to prepare us for leadership. Number three, we have a model of service. Joshua's legacy was that he was a model of service of the myriad other leaders of Israel that they have had over their period of time. Only four people in the Old Testament have gotten the title servant of the Lord. Moses, David, the future Messiah in Isaiah 53 and 44, and Joshua. They are the four people in the Old Testament who get the privilege of bearing this title. Now, in the New Testament, this title is for all of us. It's for all of us. In Judges chapter 2, verse 8, it says, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at age 110. He is the servant of Yahweh. He is the servant of the Lord. In Matthew 23, 11, Jesus teaches us exactly this principle. Jesus teaches all of us exactly this principle. He says, you want to be great? Okay. The greatest among you will be your servant. The greatest among you will be your servant. Paul will later define his own apostleship this way. When he writes the Romans, in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, he will say, Paul, an apostle, God's servant. When Peter writes his epistle, he will introduce himself as the apostle Peter, the servant of the Lord. When Jude, uh, Jesus' brothers, Jude and James, when they introduce their books, they will introduce the, themselves the same way, the servant of the Lord Jesus. When John, when he receives the revelation in the book of Revelation in chapter 1, he says that the Lord gave me this revelation, I, John, the servant of the Lord. This, it's a high honor to be a servant leader. It's a high honor to be a servant leader, and the best leaders do not fixate on creating a cult of personality. That's why you don't see like glamour shots, pictures of me all over the church. <laughs> Just post it everywhere. <laughs> I'm sorry. But we are gonna develop one just for fun. Just, and it'll show up randomly and you'll be in on the joke, so. Back to the sermon. The best leaders do not fix on create, fixate on creating a cult of personality around them or consolidating power in themselves. They don't do that. They instead view themselves as servants of the gospel, servants of the people, servants of the team. That's what they do. That what's, that's what makes a great leader great. And Joshua was just that kind of leader. And what we'll see in the book of Judges is they didn't have a lot of other leaders like that. Next, number four, he was a model of faithfulness. A model of faithfulness. Good leaders know where the real credit for their accomplishment lies. It is because of God's faithfulness, because the Lord lived up to his promises and accomplished his purpose in their time. Look at what Joshua says, two different times here. Chapter 23, 3, 9 through 10 and 14. He says, you have seen for yourselves, this is kind of his farewell speech here. You have seen for yourselves, folks, everything the Lord your God did to all these nations and on your account 
because it was the Lord your God who was fighting for you. Verse 9, the Lord has driven out great and powerful nations before you, and no one is able to stand against you to this day. One of you routed a thousand because the Lord your God was fighting for you, as he promised. None of the good promises of the Lord your God made to you has failed. Everything was fulfilled for you. Not one promise has failed. Good and godly leaders never take credit for, for what is God's alone. Did he use our preaching? Yes. Did he use our teaching and our prayers and our efforts? Sure did. Did he use Joshua's uh, warfare, exhausting efforts in war. He sure did, but it was the Lord who brought the victory. And in the same way, good leaders know that it's God who brings the victory, and they reflect the glory back to God. And we will see a direct contrast to this now in the story of Abimelech. When we get to that story in the book of Judges, Abimelech doesn't even wait for God to sovereignly choose a king. He just calls himself king. In fact, his name is Abi. The word Melech in Hebrew is the word king. Abi the king. That's what he calls himself. And he seeks to, to bring the glory to himself. And it's the exact opposite of what Joshua and Moses did. And good leaders just don't do this. Philippians 2, 12 through 13, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. We are to faithfully work out whatever God has worked in. And is it work? It sure is. It's the same word, erga, from where we get the word energy, right? Like it's the same word. It takes energy. It takes effort to work out whatever God has worked in, but it is God who has worked it. In us to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Praise God. So we are faithful to work out what he has worked in. It is by his strength that he works in us. It is by his will and according to his plan and his purpose and his good pleasure that our inner being is strengthened by the Holy Spirit to accomplish all that he attends, intends in us. And good leaders know this. Joshua knew this. Joshua knew this. And number five, he was a spirit-filled leader. He left behind a legacy of spirit-filled leadership. Exodus chapter 17, 24, and 33 make it clear that Joshua was no rookie. Boy, you go back and read those passages. He was a seasoned, hardened warrior, just as much as David ever was, man. He fought side by side with Moses, the greatest leader other than him of Israel. But the defining characteristic of his leadership, this is how the Bible summarizes him, not by any of that. Here's how his life is summarized. Numbers 27, 18, a man who has the spirit of the Lord resting on him. He's the kind of man who has the spirit of the Lord so evident in his life. Deuteronomy 34, 9 tells us that Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the uh, spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. The key to Joshua's spirit-filled life was his obedience to the word. It was his commitment to the covenant of God to be faithful to it and loyal to it. It was his commitment to pray before the Ark of the Covenant with the elders of Israel, to seek God's face and to hear his voice. And because of his faithfulness to the word of God, he received this promise, Joshua 1, 5, 9, 9 and 17. It says, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. That's the greatest thing a leader could ever hear, As I will be with you. 
And if God is with you, who could be against you, right? That's the greatest thing a leader can ever hear is that ringing endorsement. He is a spiritual leader. And we find this in the New Testament. The apostles recognize very early in their ministry as all kinds of really complicated sort of situations are brewing and happening within the church, here's what they say, Acts 6, 4. Peter responded to this administrative crisis before the church and the distribution of resources. He says, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. I believe this is referring to the elders and the apostles who had to equip the deacons to run the administrative programs of the church. Now, some leaders that I have worked with have neglected their preaching because they've spent all their time in administration. I worked with one gentleman who was a wonderful mentor in so many ways many years ago, but he just sort of saved his, the writing of his sermon for Saturday evening. And on Sunday morning, it really showed. I hope it doesn't show here because mine is done by Thursday, usually Wednesday. I can tell you right now that our priority is the preaching of the word and praying, seeking God for his will and his presence in our lives. But the opposite is true also. I have worked with and met and been in relationship with some pastors who were exactly the opposite. All they did was study the Bible in preparation for preaching on Sunday, and they did nothing administratively, and their churches weren't run, they, they weren't run well. And people stop going to them because no one likes to go to a church that isn't administrated well. And so there's a tension here. There's a balance we have to live in the middle of. But good leaders know what their priorities are. Pastors and elders and apostles and these folks, they knew what their priorities were. And that is prayer in the word and equipping others to run the administrative programs of the church, largely speaking. And this is what good leaders do. And Joshua was that kind of man. And by contrast, the judges of Israel, now they will be described later in Hebrews chapter 11, it's very interesting, as people of faith. In the book of Hebrews chapter 11, these are men like Samson and Gideon and Barak and Jephthah. They do have faith. They are commended for their faith, but they're never commended for their character. They're never commended for being the paragons of principled leadership. Because unlike Joshua, they have bouts of fear and bouts of doubt, doubt in themselves, doubt in God, doubt in his calling, doubt in his word. But wherever these leaders succeed, these judges' leaders succeed, they mirror Joshua's competence and commitment, and wherever they fail, they do not look like Joshua. They do not look like his unifying, serving, equipping, courageous, faithful leadership of God's people. So this is what the book is about. The book of Judges is one continuous story. It's not a bunch of stories about individuals. It's one story. It's one continuous story of Israel's faithfulness to God punctuated by a few short-lived spiritual awakenings led by a few judges. That's what it is. Followed by a period of kings and prophets. And here's what we learn. This is what we learn. Israel can't save itself. And their kings can't save them either. Neither can their judges. And the prophets give up. The prophets start prophesying about a future king, a son of David, a new Joseph, a new Jacob, a new Judah, who will come along and he will defeat our true enemy, which is sin, and the king comes through the tribe of Judah. And this tribe, as we'll learn in the book of Judges, is very, a very inconsistent and very defective group. 
Sometimes they do what is right and they are praised for it, but sometimes they are guilty of moral horrors. They're rewarded when they obey and they're judged when they sin. And the Messiah comes through them nonetheless. And the author of Judges wants us to see that a major part of the solution is a new king of God's choosing who will establish God's kingdom forever and whose son will reign in an eternal, unshakable kingdom because he reigns from the heart. He, he deals with our real problem, which is sin. I want to read you Matthew 1.21. This is a translation from the Aramaic or the Syriac version. That's Jesus' original language, right? And this is what it says. She, Mary, will beget a son, and you are to name him Yeshua. Now that name, Jesus' name in Aramaic, is a contraction of the name Joshua, which means Yahweh saves because he will save his people from their sins. So it's a play on words. And so the nations are going to hear this news and they're going to be glad. Why? Israel is going to hear this news and they are to be glad and they are to rejoice. Why? Because a new Joshua has come. The second Joshua has come to save the people from their false gods and their idols and their sin. And the true eternal God through Christ his son will reign and he will rule. And no earthly king, no nation, no people, no tribe could accomplish this. Only the zeal of the Lord Almighty could get it done through Jesus of Nazareth, his son. And that's why, folks, as we go through this story, it is so vital, it is so critical to see that this is God's story and God is the hero of this story. And he's the hero of your story too. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so thankful this morning for these encouraging accounts, and even though some of them are, are quite disturbing or strange or they seem weird to us, we thank you for this great book. We thank you for these examples that you have put both positively and counterexamples. We thank you for Joshua. We thank you for the fact that you raised up this young leader and he became a mighty warrior, a mighty man of faith, a spiritual man, a unifying leader, an equipping leader, and a man who died well and left behind a legacy of what good spiritual and godly leadership was supposed to look like. And we thank you for Jesus of Nazareth, the second Joshua. We thank you for the king. We thank you for the son of David who has been born into the world to save us from our sins. And we praise you and thank you for that gift. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.